Hello and welcome back to the Red Tech Legends podcast. I am your regular host, Tom Richardson, and today we have a treat in store for you. Uh, we're going to be joined by Mr. Michael Harris and Mr. Chrisol Correa, who are going to be taking us on a journey back in time, looking at the history of the name screening industry. Um, I will be joined by friend of the show and uh, co-host, Mr. Alex Pillow, in some of these interviews and in the second in this two-part series, which will be uh, more focused on the future of name screening and some of the uh, technology innovations that are taking place there. So without further ado, I'm going to cut straight to Alex and I sitting down with Mike Harris as he talks us through some of the regulations and compelling events that brought this industry into being. Thanks, Tom. If we look back in time to the 1970s, we could see that internationally there was a growing problem with drugs trafficking, uh, particularly in the USA. Um, a lot of uh, uh, issues with drug cartels in South America uh, smuggling their, um, their goods into uh, the US. And uh, as a result of that, an awful lot of money trying to find its way into the uh, financial um, services industry, to banks. So obviously this increasingly came to a point where something needed to be done. Up until that point, it was quite easy to just rock up to a bank with a suitcase full of cash, open an account, and off you go. Clearly, as a result of that, an awful lot of illicit money was finding its way into the system. Obviously things couldn't carry on as they were, so the authorities really started to introduce laws and regulation to try and ensure that there were safeguards for the system and that at the point of entry, i.e. when suitcases of cash were being presented, you know, a range of checks were introduced to make sure that they were coming from legitimate sources. So the first thing that we saw was that back in the 1970s, uh, the, the FinCEN agency, as it's called in the USA, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, uh, was set up to reinforce or enforce the recently enacted Bank Secrecy Act, BSA as it's known in the USA commonly. And the BSA, the Bank Secrecy Act, was designed to safeguard financial systems by introducing checks and controls on bank accounts for the first time. And really it was the forerunner for everything that's happened ever since. So if you trace back the origins of everything that's gone on in terms of AML controls and regulation, that was very much at the starting place. Interesting. And so with that, the BSA regulation, is that when name screening started or were there different ways and methods that the banks started to, to use to show compliance with, with BSA? Well, in those days, of course, we didn't have the systems that we've got today. So, you know, early name screening was very rudimentary, would often be a lookup list of some sort and uh, matching names against uh, hard copy lists and uh, even then in very early days, we didn't really have spreadsheets, you know, so the technology was very <laughs> rudimentary. So, free you know, Microsoft Excel. Free Microsoft Excel. So, you know, you have to say, well, it was a crude system. So that all sounds very US-focused, US-centric. What was the UK and, and Europe doing at this time? Well, actually, Tom, not a lot, because at that time we, we had no particular anti-money laundering regulations in place in Europe or the UK. As I said at the beginning, uh, the US was very much of the forerunner, but obviously it was very quickly realised that drugs trafficking was a global problem. You know, yeah. the money flows weren't just restricted to entry the US system. 
they were very much a, a global problem and that needed addressing. So the first big development really in that period that stands out amongst many, of course, was that the US introduced what was called the Money Laundering Act in 1986. Uh, that was probably the first serious attempt to put something very specific in place that was addressing the actual money laundering issue and enacting uh, regulation law that, that, that had to be followed by banks. Um, quickly after that, the G7 group of countries got together as they do on a regular basis and uh, what was established was that in order to facilitate a global response we needed to have some collaboration. So the G7 group of countries uh, set up what was uh, subsequently called the Financial Action Task Force, now commonly referred to as the FATF. <laughs> Great name. <laughs> but that was actually the first attempt to start setting some standards, policies and ways that other governments would introduce anti-money laundering regulations and laws into their system in order to get some level of consistency um, around the world. And that was the point at which the UK and Europe started to pick up and uh, realise that we needed to have AML controls in place. So it was really that period in the 80s, 90s when realisation was that we had to do something more than you know, what was being done elsewhere. Um, and, and, and that was the start of the whole process where you know, we saw in Europe, for example, the first money laundering directive coming in. People uh, often are aware that we're now in the sort of phase of the fourth and now the fifth money laundering yeah. directive, but forget that actually there was a three, a two and a one, you know, yeah. which obviously go before it in terms of uh, setting, you know, the tone for what was then seen as the necessary regulation to deal with the problem. And, and can you speak to what was in that first money laundering directive? What, what did it cause firms to start doing they hadn't done before? Well, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, Alex. This is the requirement to conduct proper know-your-customer checks, KYC, as we all know in, in, in the language of anti-money laundering regulation. So we had the first attempts to actually put in process uh, put in place processes that were designed to make sure that we, we knew who we were dealing with. And that meant you had to be doing some checks on people coming up for financial services in the regulated sectors. So this was the early stage of checking people's identity. And obviously in those days it was very much paper-based paper checks. So as we've been very familiar with ever since, you know, presenting a passport, presenting a document that confirmed you were who you said you were. And then this was when uh, we began to see um, uh, global sanctions becoming much more prevalent around the world. And at that point, you needed some way to actually establish whether or not the person or the business that you were onboarding was appearing on anything that you would call a sanctions list. And at the beginning of that, you know, you had sanctions being uh, implemented by the US again through OFAC, the Office of uh, Foreign Asset Control. Um, then you had other bodies following that with um, uh, establishing sanctions. Uh, and this was a very disparate set of uh, databases. So you would, in the early stages, literally have had to consult with every single one of those if you wanted to be sure that uh, the name that you have didn't appear on a sanctions list. So heavy, uh, resource heavy, uh, quite challenging checks that I'm sure from a customer perspective were quite an irritation in terms of, you know, you want your financial service, but you've got to go through these hoops to get it. Yeah. And it was difficult to do. I can imagine. And 
and, and you talk to having to check the list manually and do the same check however many times across how many different databases, talked about the sort of first providers coming in. So was their first product essentially just consolidation? I think so, yes. I mean, we saw, as we just touched on, a number of uh, vendors coming into the market who spotted the, the very good idea of saying, well, we can aggregate this data, we can put, put it in one place, we can uh, make it accessible to a customer through a, uh, some sort of uh, computer portal um, instead of having to go to all the different sanctioning bodies, for example, as I was talking about just now. They'll all rest in one place. They'll be provided in a standardized format, which makes access to that information easy. And a, a number of providers came into the market at that time you know, to, to bring that service to financial services and had a lot of success on the back of it. Um, so, you know, we clearly saw the beginning of what we recognize as the sort of uh, name screening and um, risk intelligence and compliance data world that we're much more yeah. familiar with. Speaking of risk and compliance providers, I thought it'd be interesting to briefly hear from Chris Alcorea, who can tell us what it was actually like working at one of those um, data providers in the very early days. I was using a, a product called Reuters Business Briefing, RBB at the time, um, which was a news archive and current awareness research tool, which um, I still think was the best thing ever. And um, when I was looking around, an opportunity came up to join the company who made RBB, and uh, I leapt at that and went into uh, a data operations role there. Um, which I really enjoyed and about 18 months into that uh, a shout went out for people with some language schools to work on a special project yeah. and um, I spent that summer building spreadsheets of, uh, of, of um, politically exposed people um, in Nigeria, Cambodia and what was the other one I can't remember, Peru. So, so you were literally at the beginning the guy building the spreadsheets mm, of yeah. politically exposed persons? And um, it, it was even before the term um, politically exposed person had, had been widely defined. There was, a, there was a great big long debate about nomenclature, about what do we actually call these people. Right. Um, because the client um, was um, sensitive to any potential negative um, attribution yeah. about those types of persons. Oh, wait. So, so that definition was not... Um, invented by a regulator? I think, I think it may have been, but there, there wasn't um, a wide industry recognition of the need for that type of data. It started off, from my perspective at least, my experience as a problem associated with a particular bank at that time and its, and its client base. Um, it, was only short, it was only afterwards that um, more institutions, um, due to regulatory changes, felt the need to have PEP data at the time. Nice. And it grew from there. Uh, it really did start from spreadsheets made, um, made by um, people like me on, on Saturday mornings. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, were there any other interesting names or anything that was given before PEPs was eventually settled on? Um, there was um, all sorts of things. There was uh, Prominent political persons, PPPs. There were there was a there was a PPE. So many different ones, I can't really remember. But um, they're all variations on a theme. Um, a, a lot of that was driven by um, uh, what the legal team recommended in terms of 
um, neutrality. Um, there was a, a big effort not to make value judgments um, about these types yeah. of persons. And um, it, it's, uh, and because the, the issue of PEPs wasn't really widely known or understood, um, that there was um, a, a, a lot of concern about potential alienation of, um, of uh, the client base. Yep, exactly. Um, and also public perception, why are you compiling lists about these yeah. types of people? Because um, issues such as money laundering, terrorism financing weren't really the front page news stories that they are today. So, and so in that way, we obviously know the watch lists have been there for a long time, but they became obviously more and more prevalent. It'd be good to circle back on that in a second. But really sort of the industry led the regulator when it comes to PEPs, is that a fair statement from what you've just said? Um, I, I think the industry took the ball and then defined PEP uh, into something um, that could be applied practically into a bank's operations. So um, the, the the amount of information about uh, risks was was um, was greater than perhaps the regulatory definition of those risks. Um, in, in terms of practical guidance, um, but it, it was up to industry as it as it was emerging to to really start creating the data that could be used to fulfil the regulations. And prior to that, um, watch lists and watch list screening was really things like um, the US OFAC list or HMT, and technology was designed to screen those lists, which were. Uh, in, in the early days, pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, customers were, you know, keying in from PDFs and all that sort of thing. Um, Control F searches yeah. um, in Excel, and um, the the move to much broader um, and higher volume data created operational problems, capacity problems, um, all, all sorts of um, volume problems in terms of. Uh, clearing and so on that uh, technology needed to deliver solutions for. They say everything's cyclical. I don't <laughs> We may be back around to that point again. <laughs> well, not least because you mentioned something interesting there. There were some concerns in the beginning about people compiling these lists of politically exposed persons. Um, I guess a nervousness about why are we kind of profiling these yeah. people. And obviously that's happening again now, but with uh, the next um, or a next generation of of technology with facial recognition and similar, um, so it's it's not a, a new problem. It seems These, this has been happening for a while. No, and the data protection and privacy controls um, have advanced at the same time as well. So, uh, from the perspective of a of an individual person, um, I, I think that there, no, there's there's adequate measures in place to protect privacy. And with these spreadsheets that were being built by yourself and your colleagues, um, when, how, how are you distributing the information you were putting together? Well, initially, believe it or not, it was on CD, CD-ROM. Um, younger viewers probably won't remember what they were. <laughs> uh, Google Images will have a, um, <laughs> a record for you. No, it's, um, it, does, it does sound strange, but um, it was in the days where um, not all banks were connected completely to the internet, particularly um, compliance and uh, fraud departments. Um, and there were some data security c 
concerns about pulling files over the internet, particularly into the places in the world where there are lots of um, private banks. Yeah. So, how did you get the CD? Well, um, we we uh, it was it was a long convoluted process. The internal procurement was. Um, um, was very difficult and we, we ended up having to pay a special internal price for a CD-ROM which was extortionate. Right. So I ended up going to um, a, a Bangladeshi electronic shop in on the, on the White Chapel Road um, paying paying for these things in cash and then strapping them onto my bike and riding back to the office right. where I prom promptly <laughs> spent the next two days um, burning and copying discs, testing them all and sticking labels on them and then, then putting them in envelopes. Wow. It was, um, it was really like that. Wait, so you, and the, you would post them? Yeah. Well, there was a secure courier out, yeah, but, sure. yeah, but, so but it was a physical it, delivery. It's quite funny that, you know, concerns about the internet and ultimately you, you, you downloaded it on a CD and posted it there. It <laughs> doesn't sound too dissimilar to the start of Virgin Records and Richard Branson, although <laughs> yeah. a slightly more serious industry. <laughs> Uh, when I started, the the, um, the sort of regulatory risk area of compliance wasn't always a, a very well defined or mature function within a bank. So compliance was uh, very often the sort of place in the bank where you ended up by mistake. No one really wanted to work yeah. in compliance because if you're in the back office, you wanted to get to the front office as quickly as possible. And, and uh, the middle office wasn't really a very attractive place to be. So there were lots of um, former bank managers, former policemen, that right. sort of profile, running compliance teams. Um, and watch list screening was only one small area of, of their duties, um, and it quickly became bigger. Uh, lots of banks didn't really have that defined compliance team. Sometimes it was part of the legal department or part of fraud. Um, one of my first meetings with a bank um, uh, the, the, we um, we had an appointment in in um, in the Nordics, and uh, the information from uh, prior to the to the meeting was that, that the guy's new in his role. He's setting up the department and is really interested in data. So uh, I went along with a sales lady, um, w walked through the the plush private banking hall with its deep red carpet and mahogany everywhere up the stairs, and um, um, opened up the uh, the heavy oak door. And there was a guy literally unpacking computers. He was really setting up the compliance <laughs> department. And he was the only one in it at wow. that point. Um, and um, so it goes to show how far things have come because now compliance is a, it's a board level reporting yeah. job. It's a defined profession. You can do professional qualifications and degrees in, in, in compliance. Uh -huh. And that hadn't really emerged um, when um, financial institutions first started to deal with these problems. Let's pick back up with Mike now as he tells us about one of the seminal moments for anti-money laundering regulation in the early noughties. The early AML regulations that came out um, around with FATF as we talked about earlier were really predicated around the issue of drugs trafficking as we spoke about but the game changer of course was the events of 9-11 in 2001 when of course suddenly you know we saw you know the terrible events of 9-11 unfold before our eyes and thereafter the war on terror was declared by I think Bush was the President Bush was the uh, US president at the time 
and that then drove a whole new um, area of compliance requirement to be screening and checking for uh, counter-terrorist financing. So that was brought into the equation. Going back to FATF and being a little bit technical for a second, the original 40 principles that FATF had um, established for AML regulation, another nine were added to that to cover the use case of terrorist financing, which therefore meant that banks and financial institutions had to be conducting their KYC and AML checks across a much broader spectrum uh, of possible risk exposure covering both drugs and trafficking and terrorist financing. So yeah, the whole thing grew massively during that early period of the 2000s. Could you talk us through, um, I guess, the timeline and, uh, uh, and some of the events that happened following 9-11 that are important for name screening and how that evolved and changed um, quite rapidly from that point onwards? Yeah, sure, Tom. That's a good question. You know, we saw, as we've already talked about, you know, the, the requirement for, for screening against sanctions lists. We, we, we talked about how the drug trafficking and then terrorist financing became a requirement. But of course, as well as that, we also saw an emerging pattern of corruption and particularly political corruption um, hitting our, our news wires. And we saw a number of cases where, uh, to the point where even one bank was taken down um, as a result of political corruption. So this led to a lot of consideration of what that risk entailed um, and, and you know, was it therefore uh, a concern for any bank, financial institution in onboarding uh, politically motivated people that they should treat those as higher risk and should they have more intelligence and knowledge around them? And of course the answer was yes, we need to understand that risk and build that into our, into our processes to make sure that we're mitigating and managing it. So uh, around that time the term politically exposed person was born, the PEP, the good old PEP. Um, and uh, you know, an awful lot was written about the subject of PEPs and whether this was a sensible way of going about it. But ultimately, and is now very much built into our, our, our processes, um, it was recognized that, as I've said, you know, the PEP risk, the politically exposed person risk, was indeed much higher. Why? Well, simply because uh, a lot of political offices and a lot of office holders have access to public money, uh, have uh, the ability to place significant contracts. Um, and of course, there will always be a small percentage, and we must add that not all PEPs are high risk and bad people by any means. But the fact is there are higher categories, there are higher levels of potential risk. So that was built in, became built in and baked yeah. into the, the compliance mm. processes. And I mean, to get, give us an idea there in terms of the step change of volumes that you have to deal with there, because on the sanctions list at that time, are we looking at globally hundreds of individuals? Probably more than that, but you know, a much, much lower number. Yeah. And of course, as you're rightly hinting there, Tom, once we introduced the idea of having to conduct PEP checks, the numbers of, of profiles of, of entities mushroomed out of all proportion. Yeah. So you'll find, for example, we talked about some of the early, some of the data providers that are still very much leaders in, in the market earlier on. Uh, their PEP content within their, their database will be by far the biggest element of, of, of entity um, profile that they will have 
presented to their customers you know and that will be measured in the in 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 the upwards of you know 1.5 1.8 million names typically yeah. that are peps because um, and then you know just to add to that going back to this whole development again it was driven by FATF um, and FATF developed their sort of um, definition of, of, of what is a PEP and the guidance that came out around that whole subject then got baked into compliance uh, as I said just now and that gave us some very strict or very clear ways of identifying what uh, a PEP office is and that varies you know quite significantly you know in terms of definition but that brought a little bit of clarity to the subject um, but it's a it's a very complex and elaborate um, area but it's an important one that has you know developed hugely in the last few years was obviously apart from the data that we talked about a requirement in the market for uh, automated more efficient ways of actually conducting name screens and and if we think about the way a name is presented and how it can have all sorts of errors in it technology needed to be brought in that could recognize those types of variations in the way a name might be presented um, into uh, a screening solution. Um, so there were a few original players in that market, companies like Bridger, uh, which is obviously one of our core, core products, Furcosoft, um, and others that actually uh, were repurposed for name screening because they were they had use cases and applications that were similar in other areas. So they made themselves very um, obvious uh, candidates to be used in the early stages of name screening, and. Within that, we have a generic term called fuzzy logic matching. All it means really is that the program's capable of recognizing whether John Smith is going to be spelt with, uh, with S-N-I-T-H or whether it could possibly be spelt with S-N-Y-T-H, to pick a simple example. Um, so name screening technology developed very quickly on the back of this opportunity. Let's pick up with Chris Hall on that point. Yes, thanks Tom. So. When I started, um, watchlist screening was really um, a, an operation or activity that originated from sanctioned screening. So screening the, the OFAC list from the US or the HMT list from the UK are on a regular basis. And um, the, the volume involved uh, was relatively low, um, particularly compared to a list of PEPs, so um, a, a sanctions list might have a few hundred names on it. A, a broader watch list is going to have hundreds of thousands yeah. of names. But the, the core technology um, was really um, built to screen a, a, a sanctions list rather than a much broader, diverse set of data. And that, that led to a result which you know, was, was less than optimal, shall we say. Um, many of the technologies used um, a rather old-fashioned approach to name matching, um, using things like um, Soundex and its variants, rather than looking at the purpose of name screening and, yeah. and trying to get the most efficient and effective and, and, and um, relevant match. And, and in some ways, um, industry is still catching up to that. Um, it's improved dramatically, the quality of matching and, and the uh, the appropriateness of, of matching has um, has improved um, very significantly, but
but uh, in some ways we're, we're still starting from the same place and that's um, from um, a sanction screening perspective which is quite different from um, what's needed to screen a much larger set of data. So a lot of those technologies um, had their origins there and yet they are to this day and, and until relatively recently almost the only game in town in terms of the people that provide these services um, some 19 years later. Um, That's right, so um, more features and functions have been added um, fundamentally though it's it, 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 the the um, performance um, and effectiveness of, of a technology is based on something that was designed a long, long time ago. Now, data providers have uh, for a long time tried to address some of these issues by providing um, more data, um, richer, um, higher quality data, more metadata and so on and so on, using data to address some of the um, shortcomings of technology. Uh, but I think we're, we're seeing um, a new direction in that technology is now able to do um, a lot of interesting things with um, lower quality data. And, and so we're seeing um, new approaches being taken to watch this screening that um, levers technology in new ways um, and um, seeks to provide um, more relevant search results rather than uh, taking an approach um, which had been in place for many years um, previously. Okay, so for those um, maybe listening with not as much experience or maybe never worked in the industry, when you talk about enriching the data, high quality versus low quality, can you sort of define that a little bit? What, what are the things you need to make high quality data? Sure, so um, currency of data, first of all, is it correct and up to date? Um, accuracy, is it all there? Um, has it has it at a basic level been keyed incorrectly? Yeah. Um, has the information been taken for, from reputable sources of information that um, that have uh, um, paid journalism, for example, um, indicating a, a degree of quality? Um, is it complete? Um, have um, has a research team undertaken a comprehensive um, look at all the sources available? Um, and then how is it delivered? Is it delivered with the metadata needed um, for a machine to use it effectively? Uh, when I started, um, data wasn't always delivered in that way. So um, in the first iteration of a product I worked on, um, the data birth was delivered as a text string uh, rather than as a numeric date format. Um, which sounds like a, a, a little thing, but actually it, in name matching, it, it's pretty fundamental um, it's in, terms, in terms of how you can use that information. Uh, and so o over the course of time, we, we've seen uh, more structure being applied to data um, and more metadata. And the, the number of um, tags and, and um, levers that is on the data means that it can be used in different ways by technology to implement things um, like, for example, a risk-based approach to screening. Um, can you identify all the geographies, all the risk activities, all the types of person involved um, for that particular risk out of a much broader data set which contains um, large numbers of people who don't pose the same types of risk to a particular institution? So really the, the more tags in the right, you know, formats, the better 
the, the technology will be able to work, the more efficient the, the team can be that's using it. Yep. And delivered in a way which um, means that the information can be used quickly mm. as well, rather than um, involving a processor with long processing times. Yeah, makes sense. Coming back to you, Mike. The next EU money laundering directive that would have kind of kicked in post those events would be the, the third? third. Correct. Yeah. 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 That wasn't until 2007. 2005, 2006 comes right. to mind, but it was around that time, Tom, you're right. We had the second in 2001, um, and then the third came fairly quickly on the back of that and was around for about 10 years. So, um, But yes, that was the point at which this whole business of not just pet risk, but then additional categories of risk that you needed to be aware of as a business and you wanted data you know you want to know who the potential bad guys are when you're actually onboarding a, um, a new entity or managing your existing book of business you know risk changes it's dynamic it's not sort of a snapshot it's not frozen in time you know we take a snapshot and we look at risk at any one particular moment but of course it changes so without realizing it you could have already onboarded somebody in your book of business or a business that subsequently has got itself into hot water some corruption some sort of bribery allegations or financial crime um, issues so you need to know this so the business of constantly ongoing monitoring and screening your book of business is, is a very important development and that really came very much on the back of the uh, development of the third money laundering directive and the regulations from there. Was that ongoing monitoring piece, was that something that was done as a process initially? And then do you recall when that became a technology solution from, from the industry? Well, very early on, you know, the regulations were telling financial institutions that they needed to manage their, their existing um, portfolio and manage ongoing risk. So once they'd onboarded, you know, as I said, keep that risk monitored and managed. So they needed a solution for it. So the idea of batch screening came in. We needed to have the ability to put, submit to our screening engine, as we talked about earlier on, large batches of data that could be presented to the screening engine that's using all these data sources and ingesting that data to check on a you know hourly daily weekly whatever basis um, that reflected the you know the, the risk profile that you've got so ongoing monitoring became a huge subject and the, the the technology providers very quickly had to provide solutions that enabled them. so sort of the first step was to go from one point in time to then multiple points in time via batch yes but still running through running through running through absolutely and now I think it's fairly common for it just to be an automated process. Yeah, Do you ongoing when that move. Yeah, move that was. Occurred? Oh gosh, that's a good question. I remember we had solutions uh, for that back in the sort of um, well, where are we now? Twenty twenty, sort of ten years ago, twelve years ago. So I would say it was the it was maybe the the mid two thousands onwards when we saw batch screening coming in that enabled background screening to be conducted so you could have continuous monitoring of your book yeah. of business against the uh, against the backdrop of data and then be alerted to anything that had changed and that then obviously became the mechanism through which you could uh, conduct any checks yeah. because you now know there's something changed in the risk profile 
I think that's so interesting to sort of hear the stepping stones because if we think where we are now, yeah, you don't need to do the batch. You just have a delta process running constantly, and Absolutely. you've given it to a machine. Yeah. But between that, what you didn't go from one place to another, there's all of these, there's all these incremental you know, steps. mini innovation, Absolutely. or maybe it's big innovation at the time, but yeah. on look back, it's... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, some of those early ones can look quite primitive to what, we, what we're able <laughs> to do time. today. So. <laughs> yeah, the managed utility, the outsourced solution, you know, that was certainly, uh, you know, um, a, a, and still is a great concept, yeah. great concept. So there's an ink, you know, there are providers that do it, or is that a... Um, we do it, but at a conference uh, in November, one of the big four, one of the global partners um, got up and he was sort of, in a nice way, I, no, in a nice way, he, he wasn't being um, arrogant at all, but sort of was just poking fun at all of these banking execs going, why are you still paying me for remediation? <laughs> you have the technology, <laughs> use it or buy it. Um, but it was, uh, it's interesting, it's such big business still. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And it's a very compelling idea um, hasn't perhaps got as much traction as we all thought it would 10 years ago. Um, there's certainly pockets of, uh, of implementation of, of single um, outsourced solutions, often within a you know, single institution, they'll have an outsourced solution within that, that group, that, that banking mm-hmm. entity. Um, multiple solutions, so, uh, there's been a few, been a few uh, in other parts of the world that have been, um, have been set up and tried, but you know, I think it's uh, like everything, you're, you're still not off the regulatory hook. If you've outsourced the responsibility to someone still else, it's still your risk. And I think that's one of the big challenges of, of, of this. Having said that, there's multiple benefits. You know, Why is it that bank A, bank B, bank C will all have to individually manage the risk of a common client? You know, that somebody that has services with all three banks, for example, you know, you share that risk, yet you can neither share the information or the intel that you have on that individual or rely on someone else's checks, you know, that they've already done. You have to do your own. So, you know, it's a pretty inefficient system in many ways. In many ways. I think it's it's so hard to square that circle, though, in terms of how do you make sure people are accountable, mm. um, if not by owning their own risk. Mm. It's, uh, yeah, if someone comes up with a solution, and uh, before everyone starts shouting utility at me, <laughs> um, I've heard it talked about so many times. Um, I think there are some, maybe we talked about baby steps. I think there's some baby step ones going on now, which maybe are just taking, well, we can't do the whole thing, but let's do a little let's bit. Let's do a bit of it. Bit of it. Yeah. And it removes yeah. some of the burden. I think that yeah. sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think we came up with the sort of uh, the, the, the big bang solution originally, and several firms came out with big bang solutions and then quickly realized that that wasn't going to get much traction. So you're right, you know, baby steps and, and, and specialist areas where it can work. Yeah. Could you talk us through how the those uh, regulations evolved to match industry or emerging threats? Yeah, I think that's 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 exactly right. You know, let's talk about the fifth money laundering directive because that's what we've just implemented in the UK, leafing up the already newish fourth money laundering directive that has been implemented in June 2017 uh, in the UK. So just a couple of years later, uh, why was that? Well, as you as you touch on there, Alex, you know there were a number of emerging financial crime threats uh, and situations that literally hadn't been foreseen as the regulations had developed just five to 10 years ago. The FATF regulations that we implemented in 2017 were formulated back in 2013. And you know we're, we're looking at that as if it's sort of history. 
in financial crime terms because what's happened since then we've had things like the Panama Papers revelations where a lot of um, uh, use of offshore companies complex uh, corporate structures uh, came out into the cold light of day through the investigation uh, that was carried out and revealed the extent to which these have been abused by financial criminals, tax evaders, etc. Um, and, you know, therefore a huge threat to global financial stability. So you had that trend. You had the uh, change of terrorism. We talked about terrorism in the context of 9 11, uh, which is, you know, what, 10 years ago, roughly. Uh, in that space of time, terrorism has changed. Twenty. Sorry, thank you, thank you, Tom. My maths is <laughs> time flies. Yeah, time flies. Time flies in financial crime <laughs> terms. So yeah, twenty years ago, um, uh, in that space of time, we've seen you know the terror threat change to a very local <clears throat> one, much more threatening, as we've seen on our streets in London. Sadly, you know, even in very recent times, uh, and the nature of that terrorism was not reflected in the regulations that were implemented back in the sort of uh, you know the 2017 period even so that had to be reflected um, how we did that how that's been done is really addressing the use of prepaid cards very specifically uh, without getting too technical just reducing and making it much more difficult to to use prepaid cards as an obvious way of financing terrorism um, just by reducing the thresholds and making it incumbent on the provider to carry out much more thorough checks. So that was the kind of response to it, and that's been uh, you know, manifested, put into the, the version of the Fifth Money Laundering Directive. And then, as you touched on earlier, the whole area of crypto assets. You know, in this last 10 years, we've seen an explosion of, of, of cryptocurrencies, all of that built around blockchain technology, distributed ledger technology with the purpose of being able to move money, let's call it money, around the world seamlessly and without jurisdictional restraint and, you know, opaquely, you know, without knowing who the sender and the beneficiary would be. So this became a huge challenge, you know, and it was clear for the authorities that increasingly that could be abused in financial crime terms. Europol, for example, I did a piece of research and they, they estimated that something like £37 billion worth of money had been washing around in uh, virtual currency uh, exchanges. So clearly this was a problem. Whilst it's washing around in virtual world, it really doesn't have a huge impact, but of course it all has to come out somewhere and be exchanged into fiat currency. And that's where the real problem was, you know, the exchange mechanisms for getting virtual money out into real money with no controls. So that had to be brought into the regulatory uh, environment. Absolutely, and with it now in the regulatory environment with, with the FIF, how do you feel that the vendors are actually well prepared for that? Have they always had the product to service this and people just maybe haven't used them as much? Or do you think this needs more innovation from the the vendor side of, or the regtech side? Yeah, I think there's going to be a need for, for, for further uh, um, uh, development, further innovation. Um, if you think about the digital world, you think about the speed of transaction. If you apply the traditional ways that we do that, say in a, a money service bureau, a wire exchange, you know, you've got a movement of money from one uh, exchange to another. Um, and that has to be controlled. That has to be, you know, that that payment has to be um, checked. There has to be some, you know, controls over the 
the, the, the sender and the, the beneficiary of that transaction. So that, a well-trodden path in the, in the existing world. Transpose that into the digital world. And you know, my question is, is there technology suitable to do that in a sensible time frame that would enable the transactions that have to be monitored and regulated and the beneficiaries identified and the sender identified and the payment checked and there to be a sanctions check somewhere within that process. You know, all that happens in, in let's call it real world money uh, land, but you know, that has to apply also in, uh, in virtual currency exchanges. So there's some technology, I think, needed development that's needed in that space. And how about the other side of names between the data side? We talked about at the start, there was tech, there was data, they've come together. I think for the most part, they're together now. I think I'm fair in saying that. Sure. Um, do you feel that the data sets are there for the right um, protections against the predicate offences that the fifth talks about? Well, that's a good question again. Uh, you keep asking some good questions, Alex. <laughs> but basically, yeah, you've got now, I think, a phase where we need to get much more uh, knowledgeable and understanding about these predicated offences because, you know, money laundering is a global term. Money laundering per se is not an offence. It's the predicated offences underneath money laundering, such as we talked about, you know, trafficking and all those forms of, of criminal activity, that the actual offences. So as that changes, you know, we must have data sets that reflect those changes and we must, must understand that in compliance terms because, you know, the job of compliance, interesting that what's come out in this last uh, year, in the last few months even, is that we're now talking much more about the effectiveness of AML controls. Uh, it was very much a culture of, you know, check, look at the system, what answer does it give you? Does it tick the box? Doesn't it tick the box? You know, we have to move on from that very quickly because, you know, we've got so, so much more sophisticated world. So understanding the predicated offences, um, and just as an example of that, the, the so-called sixth money laundering directive, which is hot on the heels of five, uh, mandates that financial institutions have got to be able to cope with and know about 22 different predicated offences. So I think I was getting confused with the fifth and the sixth there, so that, that was the one I think I was more referring to. Right, yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's where it's going. That's the direction of travel that we're talking about here. I'm glad also you talked about box ticking, because that means I can tick off <laughs> that question that I had. <laughs> what examples are there of institutions getting this wrong? And what has what have been the ramifications of that? You mean in terms of fines? Well, that's kind of where my mind was. That's ultimately, yeah, yeah. Well, we have seen just about every major bank has got in hot water and ended up ultimately paying significant fines. Fines that go in literally to the billions. You know, we've seen several massive fines in in sort of seven figures uh, for some of the global banks for breaches of AML controls, not having. Um, you know, their, their, their proper controls in place and the result of that, you know, facilitating money laundering. Could be a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but we certainly have seen the regulators uh, bearing their teeth um, much more. And as a result of that, you know, the fines have increased pretty much year on year. If you look at the trend of fines from, you know, the sort of period of 10 years ago to today, there aren't many years where it's actually reduced from the yeah. previous year. It's, you know, the trend is undoubtedly upwards, more fines. And again, going back to our discussion around, you know, 6MLD earlier on, briefly we touched on that. One of the other 
mandates within it is an increase in the penalties, you know, for breaching, you know, the regulations. So we'll like to see more of this. But uh, is it working? Is the is a is a big question I have in my mind. Absolutely, I think um, I'd be interested to know how that's that's again how that's impacted uh, either requirements or de- or or desire wants, for lack of a better term, from the the buy side of this equation, the actual financial institutions or or associated companies, and then the vendors. So just as you sort of said, nine eleven, and then all the corruption that was also exposed in that early two thousands period led to PEPs becoming very much a, a needed mm. part of the data sets. How have these fines changed what what I was looking for? You mentioned sort of enabling money laundering, but you don't see that many money launderers on a on a sanctions list. You don't, and that really leads into just how effective are we at actually identifying the the the, the criminal organisations, the the money launderers, if you like. Um, how effective are we at actually uh, repeat finding the, the the illicit money and then actually getting it out of the system, seizing the assets? Well, you know, stats would say not very successful. You know, the figures quoted, and you can never really rely on figures because who can prove them? But less than one percent of the of, of total illicit money washing around is ever re- is found and identified, and therefore seized by the authorities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got an awful lot of activity going on for probably not a very, uh, in business terms, a very successful outcome. So, you know, there's a big challenge and we have to get, you know, a little bit smarter about how we're going to, you know, improve that result, if you like. And I think that's one of the big challenges we've got coming up. Do you feel that's a lack of tools or maybe not an ideal use of the tools that are available? Who knows in terms of would another bit of technology revolutionise the detection rates? Mm. You know, we've got AI, we've got machine learning, we've got all that known universe of technology are we applying it and getting the maximum use out of it i would suggest not i'd suggest there's a long way to go to improve the detection rates you know we talked about big data earlier on the fact is we're drowning in data um, and and actually making sense of the patterns of that data what it's telling us can certainly be helped massively by you know better usage of technology you know it's there to be used I think one of the interesting things with this industry is they definitely come from an unstructured data beyond, apart from the list, but the real benefit is when you structure it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. I think that's that's part of this is... Yeah, uh, but, but tools are there to deal with unstructured data. You know, there there's technology available to do that, you know. The, uh, the other thing, of course, is that it, it's in some ways you're swimming faster to stay still in so much as the bad guys get more sophisticated. New tools come into existence that they're able to leverage for their uh, dodgy ends. And uh, and so you're adapting and getting better. But it's, you know, it's it's sometimes just to, to kind of stay still. It's a cat and mouse game, isn't it? You know, yes, the, 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 the money launderers are just as tech savvy and smart as the people on the other side of the fence trying to find them. So, you know, you do have that challenge that, that by and large, if a money launderer was in our midst right now, sat with the three of us talking about this, you know, we probably wouldn't recognise uh, that person as being anything different from us, you know, with, 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 with what we have. So, you know, I think there is, a, there is an issue that, that is going to be a constant challenge. And part of that is not just the fact that they are tech savvy and they're smart and they're able to use the tools that we have to try and find their activities. 
but they're not constrained in the same way. They don't have jurisdictional constraint. They don't have, you know, uh, limitations in terms of what laws prevail upon them. So there's always that advantage, you know, that they can move quicker, smarter, faster um, than, you know, the authorities and the compliance teams trying to find them. It's interesting you mentioned fence. I was describing to somebody earlier today that you can think of name screen very much as the fence. That's mm. that's the analogy in terms of a defensive system. It is the outer fence. It is to stop the known bad guys mm. if used right. Mm. No, so you've got your sanctions. You've got peps so that you can assess and let the right ones through and reject the yep, yep. the the corrupt mm. ones. You've got your adverse media for anyone that's previously been caught and it's been reported on. But anyone that's never been caught, name screening is not there to help you with. That That's for another series on a different <laughs> set of tools. Very true. Very true. And then you've got the issue of how um, how is name screening going to evolve in the next few years? Because as we know, people can very easily create fake personas. They can hide behind um, virtual private networks, VPNs. Uh, there's all manner of means to actually hide, literally hide your, your, your presence using digital technology um, as a result of that, you know, the traditional name screening solution is going to have to evolve, you know, to, to have a digital um, uh, solution that will enable us to actually step outside of the traditional, you know, grabbing a name and looking at it and saying, well, this isn't on our list, so we're okay. Or as you suggested there, well, maybe it's a dodgy guy that we're not even aware of and hasn't hit our list yet. So, you know, we have to have much smarter digital ways of actually, you know, identifying potential risk. And I think that's where the, the list market, the industry is going to go in the next few years. If you had to place a bet on the emerging technologies, which one do you think will do the best job Probably not asking the right person there. <laughs> of, uh, or the best job of um, trying to, you're never going to fully close the gap. They're always the best criminals in terms mm. of skill, mm. never get caught. But that's mm. why we've never heard of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what, which one do you think can catch some of the ones that previously considered themselves quite skilled? The patterns of money laundering behavior that would suggest that you've got a problem and you need to have a look at it. And again, that comes back to how do you do that? Well, that's back to the point about technology. Mm. Um, so I think we have to say that, you know, that's going to be an area that, that will continue to, to evolve. Um, we've talked about uh, the use of uh, NLP, natural language programming, as one of those tools for scouring in real time um, uh, the web. Uh, natural yeah, language yeah. processing. You meant to say. Yeah, absolutely. What did I say? Programming. Programming, sorry. Yeah. NLP, we'll stick with NLP. the acronyms. So, yeah, so using NLP to actually get behind and get that data, present it back and, and use it. Um, let's talk a little bit about name screening because we talked quite a bit about that in this conversation. Um, we are still in a world where many, many firms are drowning in... Um, what we call false positives. In other words, we now have a possible name match. We've got to do some work having got that possible name match to determine whether indeed it is uh, a real false, a true positive, it's actually the person or the entity that we need to be concerned about, or it isn't. And that's again an area where technology uh, is uh, enabling a much more efficient way of dealing with that remediation work doing the heavy lifting, I think a phrase you used earlier on, 
um, and then enabling the uh, the compliance officer to deal with much more efficiently what's left in that pile after that work's been done. Technology has a big role to play in that area. Quite right, Mike. That's probably a good place for us to press pause for a moment because we will be tackling that subject very specifically in episode two, uh, focused on the future of name screening. Uh, that episode, we're going to have contributions from Charlie Dellingpole, founder of Comply Advantage, Mr. Vincent White, UK director of no-name screening startup Facepoint, uh, and our friend from this episode, Mr. Chris Old Correa. Um, I'm going to be co-hosting that one again with Alex Pillow, and so that's definitely one to um, to listen to, and that's available straight away. Uh, you can listen to that immediately after this one if you can handle another hour from us. Um, I'd just like to finish by saying big, big thank you to Chris Holt and Mike from this episode. Valuable, invaluable insight into the history of uh, name screening. I found it very useful. Hope you guys did too. Thank you and goodbye.